0: Eye Brain Map by Rita McInnes Chapter 2 Introducing the Eye Brain Map In this chapter, I introduce you to Jack and to the Eye Brain Map and give you some of the backstory of how the map was developed. In the next chapter, I explain the nuts and bolts of Eye Brain Map, why it works and when it doesn't work. Then, in subsequent chapters, I unpack each section for your brain. Note that the I-Brain map is a map of the impact of traumatic and overwhelming events on the brain, but is not about physical brain trauma. Introducing Jack and the Map. Jack is 34. He is married to Katie and they have a two-year-old son, Ted. Jack is experiencing stress at work because of his conflicted relationship with his boss. Jack has had warnings about his angry outbursts and has been told that another incident will result in his dismissal. His GP is concerned about his drinking, though Jack doesn't see it as a problem. In the first session, Jack was reluctant to discuss his family of origin, but he eventually described his childhood with a violent alcoholic father and a mother overwhelmed with taking care of a household of five children, constantly trying to keep the peace to avoid angry, violent outbursts from Jack's father. The following dialogue between Jack and me occurs in our third session and shows one way I might introduce the brain map. Have you ever been really lost, Jack? I mean, really lost where you thought you could die or never get out lost.
1: Yeah, I got lost in the Blue Mountains once with a friend. We were both 17, a bit macho and made out we knew more than we did. It came in cold suddenly and we weren't prepared.
0: How did you feel when you realised you were lost and didn't know if you'd get out?
1: Terrified. I pretended I was cool, but I freaked out. I thought I was going to die. Lucky, we found some shelter for the night.
0: Yes. When we're lost and disoriented, we feel frightened and distressed, and we panic and go around in circles, yeah?
1: Yeah. We did start going around in circles, but We couldn't find any signs or markers. Everything looked the same.
0: We look for signs or markers to work out where we are in relation to where we want to go. We try to orient ourselves. What do you need when you're lost, Jack?
1: Uh, A warm jacket, even if it's summer.
0: Anything else?
1: A good map. We had a crappy old map, not enough detail and out of date, There'd been a flood that had washed out paths and markers, but we didn't know that till later.
0: Yes, a good map that's up to date and sufficiently detailed. And that's why I want to give your brain a map. Because essentially it's working on old maps or maps that don't fit together or have enough detail of the territory of your experience.
1: Old maps? Try no maps? I don't think I have a map for any of this stuff. I'm just going round in circles with no way out, like a dog chasing its tail.
0: And how is it to go round and round and not know where you're going? Feeling like you'll never get out.
1: Horrible. Frustrating. Pointless. Frightening. Confusing. I feel like an idiot. Do you want me to go on?
0: No, Jack, I get the picture. That's exactly what I'd expect. When you drop into those old maps, what we call re-experiencing, because it feels like a current experience, even though the old map you're running might belong to an experience from 20 years ago, the part of the brain that orients, the hippocampus, goes offline. Your experience of being lost is neurobiological. The hippocampus is a structure in the brain involved in memory. The function of the hippocampus is at the heart of orientation and mapping, which is the cornerstone of iBrainMap. The function and malfunction of the hippocampus will be discussed in detail in Chapter 8.
1: Well, something goes off, usually me, when I'm in a rage. I might as well be a madman lost in the mountains.
0: That's why I'd like to give you a map of what's going on so your brain has something to orient to when it's lost in the old terrain of fear, frustration or rage.
1: Worth a try, I suppose.
0: I'll also give you some strategies to help you bring your attention into the here and now or, in orienting terms, find your current location. The main two things the brain needs when it's lost are a map and knowing where you are now. The brain can pretty much do the rest, and we can fill in the gaps as we go. So can I have the map now? I'll do the map with you in the next session. But couldn't you just give me a copy now? No, I actually need to describe it in a way that engages the whole brain. The physical map that I'll give you is only the representation of the map. Something else happens... As I describe, explain and provide an experience of the map with you, if I just give you a nice coloured map instead of unpacking it with you and working with you to discover what's relevant for you, there won't be much integration. Just giving you a ready-made map would give you some cognitive understanding, but it wouldn't catalyse integration. Say what? Catalyse. Yeah, I know it sounds a bit neuro That's another term for being up my own uh, bottom. But catalyze is the best word because it seems to be how the brain map works for most people. It is a catalyst for integration. Forget neurobum. I made that up. (laughs)
1: Well, neurobum works for me. Catalyze? Like the way my boss catalyzes my rage when he does his rant in the meetings?
0: Perhaps. We can talk about where the boss is. In your map later. Doing the map with you is like inviting your brain to pull out its relevant maps of experience to make some adjustments as we go. Because some of the maps you're using you picked up as a kid and they're no longer relevant.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Like you said before, when my boss starts misbehaving, I pull out the map of my dad I drew up when I was four years old, right?
0: Yes, yes. But you can't just change these maps by thinking or trying to talk yourself out of your reactions because the relevant part of the brain uses a different language. It's nonverbal. But I'll talk about this when I do the I brain map with you. It's this unfolding of the map through describing the experience of what's happening in the brain that allows it to travel the terrain of how trauma impacts and that can kickstart the integration process allowing the brain to weave together the old map and this new information and experience. At the moment, these maps are all operating separately.
1: Sounds like a lot of hard work, Rita.
0: Well, a lot of it relies on the brain's capacity to integrate, and the brain can do that in its sleep, quite literally. The Tunnel When an existing body memory map is activated, it's like suddenly finding yourself lost in a dark tunnel. You freeze with fear because you can't find a way out. It seems endless, frozen in forever. When you are lost in the tunnel, you will do almost anything to get yourself out of there or avoid it ever happening again. The I brain map gives you a different orientation, an experiential map of what is happening when you're trapped in the tunnel. It helps you reconnect with what's beyond the tunnel with the possibility of getting out. It's likely that having a map engages the hippocampus because this is the mapper and navigator of the brain, so it can reorient to the map in the context of distress and begin to navigate you through the tunnel. This is an important point. The brain needs a map that can be accessed during activation, so the map needs to include sensory detail to engage the survival brain or lower brain because that's the brain region associated with alarm. Between avoidance and overwhelm is the sweet spot called integration, where the brain is able to update old maps of experience that are still running. Not just any new map will do the trick, it needs to be a map grounded in direct experience that the brain can recognise when it's stuck. Giving the brain a new map based on its own experience, not just on fact and science, which speak the language of the big brain, invites the brain to make new connections. Rather than what you see, I brain map changes how you see. When the brain is functioning optimally, it works as a whole complex system. But when it's overwhelmed, highly distressed, or what I refer to throughout the book as activated, it typically becomes divided or split. The subcortical functions in the brain, responsible for survival and general maintenance, drop into alert alarm mode and start running the show. These subcortical brain functions are not consciously accessible to the big brain while they're disconnected and running an alarm loop. Throughout the book, I refer to these functions of the brain as survival brain or lower brain because they involve subcortical structures, especially the amygdala. The term lower brain doesn't imply lesser in any way, but simply refers to the location of structures in the brain involved during activation including the body and physiological reactions such as breathing and heart rate. Other terms I use for these brain functions associated with survival and maintenance include body brain, child or kid brain, puppy dog brain or naughty puppy brain, playful brain, bottom brain or under brain. For ease of understanding, I refer to cortical brain function as the big brain, top brain, adult brain, thinking brain, and so on, anything that implies our usual way of thinking and problem solving or executive function. The great divide in the brain is this top-down split between big brain and lower brain functioning, which occurs when we're overwhelmed or anxious and during activation. The most effective way back into whole brain functioning when the brain is divided is from bottom up by using the language of the lower brain or underbrain, which will be discussed throughout the book. Eye Brain Map Stories Following are three stories of how people responded to the eye brain map, which influenced the map's development. The names and details of these stories have been changed. Sue's story, from overwhelm to understanding to choice. I was working with a young woman who I'll call Sue. Sue had a history of severe childhood abuse. Over several weeks following assessment, I discussed and drew the dynamics of the impact of trauma on the brain, describing the techniques I would use in session if she became distressed. This was all preparation for exposure. But before I had a chance to start the process of exposure, Sue came to session animated. She explained that she'd been driving and was activated for some reason. Instead of responding with her usual reactions, why, 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 or what's wrong with me, Sue, you crazy bitch, and becoming increasingly agitated, She had recognised that she was activated and was able to use a condensed version of a technique I'd recently given her. She pulled to the side of the road and brought her attention into the present through detailed sensory awareness. She described how she'd given it a 9 out of 10 and felt her hand touching the steering wheel, listened to the radio and looked around at the scenery outside the car window, then had a cigarette. It worked she said, grinning. Through our discussion, it became apparent that what was important about this for Sue was that through this brief experience, she went from feeling powerless, overwhelmed and confused to understanding through direct experience of what was happening and everything I'd been explaining about the impact of trauma on the brain suddenly made sense. This experience changed everything for Sue because she understood what was happening to her. She no longer felt so powerless or crazy and not just because someone said she wasn't, which she'd never believed, but because it made sense to her through her own experience. For Sue, this was the beginning of having some choice. Jane's Story Gentle Exposure Jane had been raped two years prior to attending counselling. I was cautious about re-traumatising her and worked with her for several weeks, preparing her for exposure therapy, telling her how it would work and explaining on the whiteboard how the brain gets stuck in overwhelm or numbing and how we needed to help her get into the window of tolerance. Jane was sometimes distressed during session, although we didn't speak directly about the rape only about the impact of trauma on the brain. At those times, I would bring her attention back into the room and help soothe her by introducing her to techniques to regulate the emotional distress. When the agreed day to begin exposure therapy finally came, I was as nervous as Jane because there had been so much preparation and it was the first time I'd taken someone through the process of exposure to a specific traumatic event. Firstly, I asked her to describe the experience of the rape as if from a distance or in headlines as it's often described. Then gradually, I directed her to move in closer and closer to events with increasing detail. Although she described the details clearly, she reported minimal activation. I checked for dissociation, but she said she felt fully present and could clearly remember and describe everything. As we got closer to the graphic details of the most disturbing part of the rape, she cried softly as she described what happened. For some time I kept checking and thinking we'd missed something. I was wondering why she wasn't more distressed than she appeared, because she had been extremely disturbed by the rape when I initially assessed her. When she came in the following week, she'd had no flashbacks or nightmares, had slept soundly and said she felt great. At the time, I hadn't realised that all the preparation we'd done was a gentle form of exposure that allowed her system to integrate the traumatic events, but through a new map rather than having to enter directly into the terrain of terror, which could have overwhelmed and potentially re-traumatised her. Over several sessions, I had also been teaching her sensory soothing and self-regulating strategies, so she was confident in monitoring and soothing her own distress as it happened. I realised that explaining the map, including the experience of activation, could act as a gentle form of exposure. Sam's story, a management strategy a colleague approached me about a university student she was working with, Sam. She wanted ideas about how to help Sam manage his flashbacks and nightmares. I gave her Babette Rothschild flashback and nightmare protocols and suggested she try those with him. A couple of weeks later, my colleague informed me that they hadn't helped. Then, a few months later, that colleague left and Sam became my client. Sam was still having intense flashbacks which were interfering with his attendance at uni because he was anxious that he'd have a flashback during a lecture or when he was with his friends. We went through the flashback protocol again. It turned out Sam had never remembered to use the technique during a flashback. Because he was so anxious and activated in session, I used a similar technique to bring his attention into the present. We went slowly through how he could use the techniques when he was activated outside session and I also explained what was happening in the brain. That week I had a call from Sam who was standing outside his lecture theatre as he was re-experiencing an intense body memory related to extreme childhood abuse. He said he was shaking and nauseous I stepped him through the mindfulness-based technique, which I will outline later in the book, firmly and gently, and also reminded him that this was the brain trying to integrate something. At the beginning of the call, he reported the intensity of his distress as eight or nine, and by the end of the phone call, he said it was three or four, and he joked that his lecturer had probably given him a fright because he was so boring. The next time I saw Sam, he was much happier. He described that even knowing to call me when he was activated meant a light had come on for him. He said he got it now. He understood what I'd been telling him about the brain. Together we developed some techniques that he could use to interrupt, reorient and soothe the lower brain activation. Working with Sam, I realised the importance of how something is explained. Even a great technique, if delivered without some experiential component, may be useless. The important learning for me was that I needed to introduce and explain things in a way that a person could access or orient to during activation or high states of arousal. From hodgepodge to narrative. These stories and many others happened over a period of several years while I continued developing, adding, and integrating information about the impact of trauma on the brain to make it easily accessible. If something worked, it stayed, but if it seemed too complicated or theoretical, it was changed or left out. Slowly, the hodgepodge of ideas evolved into a visual and experiential map of the dynamics of the brain following overwhelming experiences. I saw that making it an experiential visual and narrative map instead of lots of bits of information made it easier for people to take in and digest the large amount of information I was giving them. Gradually I realised I was talking more directly to the brain than to the person. In the beginning, I wrote the map on a whiteboard in session, but later when I was working in a room that didn't have a whiteboard, I started using A3 sheets of paper and coloured textures. On the front page was all the information and visuals about the brain and how it gets stuck when it's been overwhelmed. And on the back was the mindfulness-based technique, originally inspired by the work of Babette Rothschild, that I've continued to adapt and change for clients to use during activation. And they could carry the map with them, which many people did as a reminder of what was happening and what to do when they felt trapped in the fully and forever dark tunnel. In the early days, it was called the integrated trauma map because it was based on what I knew about the experience of trauma and its impact on the brain. Over time, I realised that the same principles apply any time the brain is stuck or overwhelmed, and the same approach can be helpful to unstick the brain. That's when it became the integrated brain map or I brain map. Although I occasionally change bits of the brain map, it has essentially been in its current form for more than two years at the time of writing. I expect it will keep changing and adapting. At least I hope it will. Everyone who uses it seems to use it differently because, after all, it is just a map. And a map doesn't tell you where to go or how to go. It just shows you the way or one way but it's always your journey. The I brain map is based on experience, my own and that of hundreds of people I've worked with over the years. It has also been influenced by brain science and the work of many researchers and clinicians. Some of the main influences are Antonio Damasio, Babette Rothschild, Bessel van der Kolk, Bruce Perry, Dan Siegel and Peter Levine, to name a few. Spontaneous Integration In the beginning, I didn't set out to develop the I-Brain map. It evolved through my work with hundreds of people by trying different clinical techniques based on current research to help them manage their distress as well as my personal experience and understanding of trauma and the brain. As the stories above illustrate, I began explaining the brain as preparation for exposure therapy, but I found that before I had a chance to do the exposure, the brain had already started integrating. It is this spontaneous and innate integration process that I've been tracking like a bloodhound for years. Integration is what the brain does. And we can assist it in this process of integration and change. That's what I've come to understand. Integration is difficult to explain and describe because it is a living process that emerges similarly and yet uniquely for each brain. I am much more a tracker or facilitator in this way of working than I am a director though sometimes I am quite firm, like a mother holding a child's hand near a busy road when people are lost in activation. This approach works with the body reactions rather than the actual details of the trauma. So when I refer to integration, I am referring to the brain's capacity to integrate or respond in new ways to the body reactions that people usually experience as intense and overwhelming. The iBrainMap explains the importance of working with the body as the most effective way to access these memory maps. Therapeutic Context Because iBrainMap evolved in a therapeutic context, it is worth noting some of the reasons I developed it the way I did, because often it was a response to what people told me wasn't working for them. Following are some of the broad dilemmas that influence the way I develop the eye brain map. Exposure and the trauma story. Exposure therapy could be likened to going into the dark tunnel again and again so that you become less afraid of it. This can work if the person has the resources to manage the distress and can remain oriented to the present and or to the therapist. But sometimes exposure can overwhelm a person's resources, replicating the traumatic experience. At best, it can reduce the distress around that particular trauma, but often it doesn't encourage generalised brain integration or teach a person how to respond when they experience lower brain activation outside of sessions. Many people who came to me for treatment had told their story to numerous practitioners over the years and some refused to tell it again, saying that talking about it didn't help. So we focused on the impact of the trauma rather than the event itself. My job, as I increasingly saw it, was to teach people techniques to interrupt and soothe lower brain activation as it happened. Another issue is that most people are activated out of session and sometimes almost continuously. So I needed to teach something that would work outside as well as in sessions to reduce the feeling of powerlessness inherent in post-traumatic stress. Complex Trauma One problem with trauma memory is that it's often disconnected and therefore not accessible through words or story, or there may be no conscious memory of the events. So we need to access the memory in a different way. Therefore, the most troublesome aspects of the memory, especially in complex interpersonal trauma, such as child sexual assault, can be difficult or impossible to access through talking therapies or techniques. In complex interpersonal trauma, the violence is wrapped up with love and trust or contradictions that can't easily be untangled in any cognitive or behavioural approach. Added to this, I found the impact of trauma was extremely diverse with a myriad of symptoms that at first seemed unrelated, but always I found trauma or overwhelm lurking underneath. Could I treat fibromyalgia in the same way as panic attacks or obsessive-compulsive disorder? These were some of the questions I faced as I began to realise that it was all related to what happened when the brain was overwhelmed and unable to integrate experience. Thinking, talking and telling tales I found that cognitive and talking therapy was often not helpful for clients with high levels of distress. Challenging their unhelpful thinking often tied us both up in knots because they got into a struggle with their thinking and their distress only intensified. Often this was driven by a fix-it mentality or shoulds and shouldn'ts and working with changing cognitions only exacerbated this. In working cognitively or with changing behaviours, some clients reported a sense of shame at failing to make the expected changes, changes that they wanted desperately. Some people wanted to go over and over their story, while others worked hard to change the story. Telling the story or even creating a new, more insightful story didn't necessarily result in integration that allowed them to change their responses. Working on a narrative level often caught us up in the content of the story, while the deeper story remained inaccessible through words or thoughts because it was buried in the body in a different language, that of the lower brain or survival brain. Some people remain trapped in the story by trying to work out its origin. For many people, this didn't result in significant sustainable change in their life or even change associated with the impact of the trauma. Leaving the treatment room and entering the world. Although iBrainMap began life as a therapeutic model, in this book, I offer it to you as a personal approach. To understand and respond to lower brain activation, whatever its form, including anxiety, anger, agitation, overwhelm, freezing, and any other kind of distress that has a stuck quality, different manifestations of activation are discussed throughout the book. The eye brain map and its associated techniques is intended for use in interrupting, reorienting and soothing lower brain activation as it happens, which can be anywhere, anytime. I outline these techniques throughout the book and invite you to experiment with what works for your brain. What I can't measure or even fully understand is that indefinable quality of change that many people describe when we work with this approach that I call integration. It's as if the brain is rewiring in ways that we can't predict or measure. Interweaving the personal. It's easy to describe stories about people I've worked with and how, through intense observation of their responses to this work, I've adapted the I brain map to capture their experience and weave them in, drawing all the complex threads together. But it's hard to know exactly how much my personal experience has impacted on the development of the iBrainMap, because I'm inside that story. The impact of my own trauma on this work is central. It's what has driven me to develop iBrainMap. But there are other less visible currents and threads that interweave the development of iBrainMap and this book. It has only been through writing the book that I've realised how powerfully my work has been influenced by my experience in insight meditation and the principles I learned through the guidance of my teacher when I was in the monastery in Sri Lanka. All these things I learned directly through close observation of my own brain-body-mind. These direct insights which are interwoven through the fabric of I brain map, are outlined below. Interweaving with insight. Struggle keeps your brain stuck. The more you struggle with something, the tighter the mind holds onto it, like a fly caught in a spider web. But if you observe with curiosity or find a different relationship, orientation with it, over time it can soften and untangle. The Paradox of Change. Trying to change something creates a struggle. It is non-acceptance. Until you can accept something as it is, you can't change it. This isn't a call for passive acceptance or I don't care anyway, it doesn't matter attitude, but an active, engaged acceptance, curious and attentive, like a mother watching her child learning to walk. The other thing about change that we all know but rarely act as if we know is that the only context we can change is the one we're in right now and we can't change anyone but ourselves. The body is the brain and all experience is stored in the body. To know the mind, you have to know the body. The two are intimately interconnected and interactive. And when the body is distressed, in pain or discomfort, it grabs our attention until we learn to observe gently without struggle. And then the distress can soften and lose its power over us. Through learning to watch instead of reacting, you develop a mindfulness of whatever is arising. Interweaving the natural world Another thick thread that runs through this work is my relationship with the natural world, especially through daily solitary walks in the forest. There is something about the rhythmical movement of the walking, the silence, the birds and the flicker of light through the trees that takes my brain into a state that doesn't happen anywhere else. I enter the walk with openness. My mind feels completely awake but not tethered to anything in particular. It's like an open door, and I never know what I'll discover. An idea flashes into my mind about something I've been stuck on for weeks. It's as sharp as mountain air. Oh, of course, that's it. Walking is like a poem for the brain-body-mind. It's as if the brain weaves together all the bits and pieces and comes up with something beyond what was known till now. The old is new and something surprising emerges. Chicksent Mahaley's term, flow, describes it well. I call it integration. That makes it sound eloquent, perhaps even romantic, but sometimes my brain-body-mind is like a truck driving through a garden bed. At other times, it's like a trickle of rain down the face and into the mouth, or a flute across the clear morning. But no matter what emerges or where I get stuck, I keep walking through it, with it, in it. Nature connects the brain to a poetic quality like integration or flow. In working with brains, I have often observed something ineffable, like the mystery of nature and walking through the forest in the morning. The quality of poetry, story and music impacts on the mind and body in ways that facts and information do not. Brain face. Every brain has a face, a brain face, which is a complex individual, not just a point on a bell curve of normality. My work has been to take what brain science is offering and discover what it means for each brain face I work with, including my own, and to watch for patterns to help me track and understand the brain in everyday interactivity, what I call brains in the wild. Brains in the wild don't behave the same as brains in captivity. The brain-mind is connected to a body that is constantly moving and interacting with the world and giving us feedback. No matter how much we learn about brains in a laboratory, the lab situation is artificial and so limited. It can only show us a small scrap of the reality we walk in every day. Perhaps the most important question is, How does the brain decide what to focus attention on or orient to in the everyday when it's not directed or observed? Because what we orient to or focus on dictates everything else. But in the laboratory, the decision is made for the brain. Even being in a science lab or being observed is a particular orientation. How the brain behaves in the wild when it's frightened, lonely, expectant, in love, cranky, distracted, bored, hopeful, worried, unself conscious, creative, praying, writing, talking, yelling, drinking a cup of tea, looking out the window and remembering a different summer, singing and dancing, or doing yoga or qigong or anything else, is still a mystery. Brain science tells us the brain can change itself, but what does that mean for you and me and our individual brain face and in our relationship with other brain faces, like our boss or sister? Can Jack's brain change the legacy of his father's violence? Or can Mary, who you'll meet shortly, find peace with food? A scrap of the holy. The brain is organic a mystery of nature that we can never pin down completely, because dissecting the brain in order to know it doesn't allow us to see the interconnectivity that is the poetry of the brain-body-mind. It is far more than the sum of its parts. It's more than can ever be known because we can only know the brain with the brain. This mystery of interconnectedness of brain-body-mind singing in harmony, integrating, is like a moment of exquisite beauty, sunrise camping on a deserted beach, rain on a tin roof in the long dry, the first bite of a fat strawberry in summer, a lover's touch, children laughing, a line in a poem that reaches into the heart. It's that indescribable quality beyond the experience itself, an awakening. I see it as a scrap of the holy, a small miracle that is much more than science or fact, which only point to exquisite complexity. That poetry is also part of the journey of this book, through my encounters with the brain and the discoveries I've made. I can't write that wonder down. That would be like capturing the blue butterfly and pinning it to the page. But I hope you may glimpse a flicker of blue out of the corner of your eye occasionally as you step inside your own experience of brain in the wild.